How's it going, folks? Welcome to Found Flicks. On this ending explained, we're looking at what I've gotten a ton of requests for. The Fourth Kind. Involving an ongoing unsolved mystery in Alaska, where one town has seen an extraordinary number of unexplained disappearances over decades. Could they all be connected in a way? And as crazy as it sounds, could real-life aliens be responsible? I would wager at least partially why y'all wanted me to cover this one is that it does come across as feeling as though it could be real. The film is formatted in a novel way, with a blend of pseudo-documentary and fictional recreations supposedly based on this real footage. But no, none of it is real, it's just designed to appear that way. To its credit, it does balance this feeling well, and then also does include some real history in there and other info that makes things even more difficult to find that line between reality and fiction. That's kind of the whole point, as we come to discover with Dr. Abby as she starts encountering strange things in her small town. Yet hard evidence always remains just out of reach. It all leads to a twisty conclusion that leaves us unsure of what we should believe. However, I feel there are enough clues scattered throughout that tell us exactly what happened and who is responsible. Is it really aliens or is it all just in our mind? So let's check out the fourth kind, breaking down the story, including what parts are actually real, as well as explaining the ending and what it means. A blinding white light fades away and a blurry figure starts to approach. It's Mila Jovovich as herself. She explains that she'll be playing the character of Dr. Abigail in the motion picture The Fourth Kind. Woo, meta right off the bat there. The story is based on real events that occurred in October of 2009 in the remote town of Nome, Alaska. The director also included some real archival footage throughout. It's said to all come from the real Dr. Abigail, who had 65 hours of documented footage. The narrative recreations are all based on her footage or word from the doctor according to interviews. She concludes with a warning that things are about to get disturbing. Thanks for the heads up, Mila. The real Abby sits down to interview with the director, the actual director of the movie, and he first asks her to relax before launching into some questions. He wants to know where things began, and she recalls that after what happened to her husband Will, she went to visit a psychologist friend of hers. She was having trouble dealing with what happened and who did it, establishing a mystery regarding her husband's fate. Just what did happen there exactly? She vows that she has to remember what happened and face the past in order to heal. She wants to do this for her children, and foe Abby takes over. Since that night, her daughter Ashley can't see and believes she won't regain her sight if they are unable to find out what happened. She discusses things with her peer Abel, sniffing that she wants to remember the face of the man that killed her husband in order to track him down and set the record straight. The original footage pops up side by side with the recreation, and Abel counts down in order to hypnotize her. The split screen starts to kind of waver back and forth as their respective audio layers over itself. They take her back to the night of August 2nd, and first starts with getting her to remember details regarding the weather and such. He then moves on to when she was with Will before the intruder entered. Abby remembers they were making love, and afterwards they fell into a slumber. She was later awoken by the shock of a strange metal pick getting jammed into Will, and both shriek in terror. There was blood everywhere, she says, starting to get emotional. He tries to keep her on track about the attacker's face, but Abby draws a blank, and Abel brings her back to consciousness. She is upset with herself, if only she could see his face. Will was killed when she was right next to him. Abel assures her that it's natural to feel guilty or that it's her fault. He suggests that she consider taking some time off. That could help you perhaps find the clarity with what happened. She refuses to entertain the idea, as she is compelled to continue with Will's study, and believes that he would have wanted her to finish in his stead. The interview sets the timeline this was two months after her husband's passing, and Abby was doing her best to move on, putting her kids back in school and trying to regain some kind of normalcy. As for just how remote Gnome really is, you can't even drive there, you gotta take a little plane, which luckily she knows how to pilot. She has a session with a patient of her Scott, 
Scott, who has been having trouble sleeping, and recently things have gotten worse. Nothing out of the unusual woke him up, but he did remember one thing, an owl at his window. As she sees more clients, their stories start to sound startlingly similar, with each seeing a white owl that was just staring at him. One guy, Tommy, saw the same bird once as a child, and it has shown up every night this week. He thinks it actually was able to come inside, and another agrees, but they found it strange as the window wasn't even open. It then got on their bed looking down at him, and the lady can't remember much more. She describes it as feeling almost like it didn't happen, as though it were a dream. Abby wants Tommy to return the next day, first stressing there's nothing to worry about, but explains there are strange coincidences going on, as several other patients are experiencing something similar to him. So she's interested in trying something different. The real Abby details her children's struggles after losing Will, which was especially difficult for Ashley as she actually lost her sight, which she believes is conversion disorder. However, people don't understand, believing that she's actually faking, and as a result, she is subject to bullying at school. On the other hand, her son Ronnie appears to blame his mom for everything. When bringing up an upcoming sporting match, Abby has forgotten who he's playing, and the boy suddenly replies, Dad wouldn't have forgot. Well, he's not here, is he? She reminds him, and he shoots back, No, he's not. Can you accept it yet? Dang, what a little shit. She chides him for bringing this up around Ashley, and then he broaches the subject of that mystery of just how he died. He coldly inquires, how is she supposed to help other people when she can't even help herself? Then outside her house, we see presumably the same white owl from her client's recollections staring right outside their home. Real Abby agrees that Ronnie does blame her for Will's death and acknowledges now that he was actually right. She couldn't help him or his sister or really anyone ultimately. Phoebe pulls out a book written by Dr. Otosami, which also includes his name and number. She returns to her husband's recordings regarding his study, informing us that this strangeness has been going on in a much more widespread way than it might initially appear. There's a trend of sleep disorders in the town of Nome. Around 3 o'clock in the morning, 3.33 as we find out later, they wake up for no apparent reason, feeling apprehensive and frightened as though they could feel something was about to happen. Hearing Will's voice, Ashley comes to the door innocently calling for her daddy. Abby lets her down that it's just a recording and invites her into bed for some snuggles. The next day with Tommy, she gets him ready for hypnosis and then starts the questions. He also had trouble sleeping last night and says that he saw the owl again, but then appears troubled. She asks what it looked like, again overlapping with the real interview footage. Tommy stammers that he suddenly doesn't remember. The owl isn't there anymore. No, not like it flew away, but as though he didn't really remember it ever being there in the first place, as the line between reality and fiction blurs literally once more in the footage. Tommy's eyes pop open, saying there's something outside my door, and it's going to open it. We hear the sound of it creaking, him yelling, oh god! Abby inquires what's wrong, and both Tommies start freaking out, chanting, no, no, no! He starts flailing around, and Abby tries to reason with him. It's not real, but he insists that it is. He snaps out of the trance, surveying the damage he caused in the room, staring in confusion. Did I do that? She tells him that he did, but it's okay. She just wants to know what he saw. He utters nothing, as though he's scared to discuss any further, and she promises him that she's just here to help. Well, if that's true, he growls, then let me get out of this room. She tries one last time to probe him for more details, but he only calmly replies that he wants to talk about it next time. Though that next time won't come, as we discover just how much impact the hypnosis had on Tommy, as we cut to a later 911 call. A lady is freaking out about her husband having a gun. She cries, you don't have to do this, Tommy, and here shots fired. Uh-oh. Sheriff August arrives on the scene, and Tommy refuses to speak to him, only Abby. August attempts to offer his own help, which Tommy rebuffs, angrily opening fire. So Abby is roused out of bed and is quickly on her way. By the time she arrives at the scene, the place is loaded with cops. August wants to try and keep Tommy
Tommy Rational, as his whole family is trapped inside the house. He first apologizes to her, convinced that he has to do this. He has no choice. She tries to convince him that he always has the choice. You have it in your power to stop. He moans that she doesn't understand what he saw. He still declines to elaborate, confident what he's doing will prevent his family from ever having to see it. August radios for someone to take the shot, and Tommy starts repeating these strange words, Zim, Ma, Bu, Iter. Tommy is resolute that she can't help him at this point, and fires on his family, murdering them all in cold blood. Well, geez, whatever he saw, sure messed him up good. In the aftermath, she is interrogated by the sheriff, and Abby does her best to explain the situation. He's dubious when the hypnosis becomes a factor. Couldn't everything he supposedly saw be simply imaginary? He pinpoints that it was her putting him into the trance that resulted in his breaking, placing the blame entirely at her feet. She argues that he was suppressing something, and his blow-up would have happened no matter what, gravely stating that she hasn't seen something this intense in her entire career. August then fires back, well, if you knew he was unstable, why didn't you contact the police? She defends that he was completely coherent when leaving her office, and he's had enough on her theories of visions and hallucinations. He deals only in cold, hard facts. Naturally, Abby circles back to the mysterious death of her own husband, but August disagrees with her sentiments. She knows exactly what happened. That case is closed. She rants that you can't file away things without finding out the truth, and there are more unsolved murders here than in all of Alaska. Which is true. August tries to get real with her and shuts off the tape, and he pleads with her to stop her study. It's brought nothing but bad news to town. He doesn't care how hard they worked on the study. He refuses to let her use town people as rats. At home, she dictates into a recorder, trying to piece together the evolving situation. She recaps that her patients all saw the same owl, but suddenly went under hypnosis this time, Tommy changed his tune and didn't see it anymore. Some kind of false recollection, she believes. The question then becomes, what will happen to the others if also put under? Will they see what he did? At work, her buddy Abel has come to check on her after learning what happened. She brushes off his concerns, saying she has too many clients, and tasked her assistant with transcribing that tape. He again broaches that perhaps a sabbatical would be in order for her, knowing that she can't keep going on like this. She's steadfast that she can't give up. All she has in her power left is to keep going and find out what is causing this. She doesn't believe that it could all merely be a coincidence, not in this town. At his insistence, she at least lets him stick around for a while to keep an eye on her. They meet back up with Sleepy Scott, wanting to know what happened to Tommy. After she spills, Tommy wants to get hypnotized, needing to know if there's something that he's not remembering. The best thing to do is to face it head on. She does her countdown to Trance Town, and once more, last night he also saw the owl, but this time describes it as being beige rather than white. He continues that his eyes are big, not even resembling a normal owl. Then, just as with Tommy, he suddenly changes his story. Now there is no owl. He tries to wake up his wife, and then starts hyperventilating, saying someone is at the door. Abby asks who it is, but he doesn't answer, updating that they came inside and did so somehow without setting off the alarm. He initially thought that whatever this is only came when he thought about them, but he wasn't doing so tonight. His condition then suddenly turns more severe as he begins to convulse and gurgle. Abby tries to shake him out of it, and he gasps back to the real world, immediately tossing his cookies. He sighs, calling this whole thing unbelievable. He knows he saw them, but can't describe them any further, despite it all being in his own mind. All he can see is the owl, yet he knows it's not really an owl. The worst part for him was the voice inside of his head. They can talk to you out loud, but also can talk to you inside of your mind, as though the two are connected. Well, it certainly sounds like our mysterious visitors are somehow clouding the locals' minds so that they can't actually remember what happened to them. Scott gets emotional about not being able to remember anything, and Abby wisely tells him that she's going to inform the sheriff about their session. Yeah, I don't want to get in trouble again. With the real Abby, she's asked, would she feel any differently knowing what she does now? 
now? And Abby wearily replies that if you saw and felt what it was too, but doesn't say anything further, only stammering that it's the worst thing you can imagine, but still doesn't clarify what they're all seeing. Just tell me! It becomes clear that Abby has her own theory brewing here, considering that it could in fact be alien abductions. Abel dismisses this as ridiculous, but she defends that there is plenty of research. Over 11 million people have witnessed or know someone that has witnessed an encounter. Sure, that may be true, but as Abel points out, there are many real ways to explain off a lot of these, things like weather balloons, atmospheric effects, or perhaps, in this case, hypnotic hallucinations. Just as Abel starts to bring up the importance of hard evidence and facts, Abby's assistant enters with something startling from her tape. They play it back, hearing Abby dictating from the night before, but then the door starts to creak open. Abby begins groaning and screaming intensely. She now can't believe what she's hearing, and the yowling becomes increasingly unhinged. Even more surprisingly, there's another strange garbled voice within her own. Abel asks if that's her, and she knows it can't possibly be. She's asked now in the interview about how she reacted at the time. Shock and denial, she says. She was certain that that wasn't her voice. So she went through the events of the night and what she could piece back together. In the dark house, there's the sound of glass shattering and a huge wave of white light passes by the windows. It then makes its way upstairs, coming to her asleep. Someone or something came into her room, she understands now, and then notices a strange abrasion on her shoulder. Whatever it was, she knows that she tried to fight it off. It was ultimately to no avail as she was overpowered and drawn away. She sees evidence left behind of this happening, scratch marks in the wood, and some debris trapped under her nails, indicating that she was definitely dragged across it. After these revelations, she pulls herself together, more determined than ever to figure out what is going on. She listened to the tape over and over to try and find any clues, and also attempted many times to decode the other voice. Yet it wasn't in any language she had ever heard before. She believes this key component is the answer to everything regarding her, Will, and everything else going on in Gnome. Then she stumbled upon exactly what she was looking for, opening up Dr. Otosami's book and dials his number. She gets an answer and she asks if they know her husband, but he says he does not. He then asks who's Colin and she hangs up without revealing more. She returns to his book, flipping through seeing ancient carvings, which appear to feature rockets, and the text informs us about the place of the shim, aka rockets. These were used in attempt to reach the god Anu. Otosami calls her back, remembering that a man called from the same number before, but called himself John. There's no John here, he states, and he's like, yeah, exactly. Will had called for a lesson on ancient languages, and she spills about how he was mysteriously murdered. Real Abby describes feeling comfort with the doctor right off the bat. He just listened and didn't judge or analyze. He even flew to Gnome to help her translate the voice. It appears to be none other than Sumerian, the holy grail of dead languages, and he is able to make out a few important words. Blank blank, our creation, and then examine, ruin, or destroy. Ruin or destroy whom, Abby inquires, but he shrugs that it's incomplete, so he can't be sure what it means. Abel is losing track of the madness unfolding, and Otosami confirms that it is indeed Sumerian, the oldest language in human history ever recorded. What was being done to her, even if it sounds potentially unsettling, the vocals themselves don't sound ordinary or human, she interrupts. Abel attempts to stay rational. There could be a number of reasons for this strange distortions. Even if so, it doesn't explain why the voice is speaking in a language that predates hieroglyphics. Otosami explains further about the Sumerians, to which he has dedicated his life studying. They had things like drawings of rockets that look like Apollo launching into the sky, or sculptures of what really look like the guys wearing spacesuits and oxygen masks, the kicker being that they are dated 4,000 years before Christ. And even some of Christianity was inspired by their lore, including Genesis as well as the Ark. This aspect of the story at least is true, as it was believed by some that ancient Sumerians did actually have prehistoric spacecrafts, and there is real art that could be interpreted as such from the time. Abel scoffs at this wild theory, and Otosami defends that he 
he's not drawing conclusions, which would be impossible with the thousands of years of research behind the culture, putting it together will always be up for debate. Only fragments remain, the rest is lost to time. Abel asks point blank, you really think you were removed from your bedroom by a member of the alien race? Before she can answer, she gets a worried call from Scott's wife. So the trio set off to hopefully actually save the day this time. They find Scott in bed, still reeling from their previous session. They attempt to talk to him about it, but he doesn't want to, but he feels compelled that he has to. She pulls back the sheet, seeing a matching mark on his shoulder just like her own. Abby knows that they need to put him back under, and after some coaxing, he agrees to light hypnosis, whatever the heck that means, again ranting there's something in his head. He needs to get out. They get the camera rolling, and after counting down, he goes silent. Everyone's staring on in suspense. He then rises up, hearing what sounds like a stabbing sound, and Scott starts to shake, his mouth opening wide. He's lifted into the air from under the sheets, and the strange voice is back. Amongst the message, later translated, is Abby Taylor, respond. No need, pray. I blank her end blank study blank. Just as suddenly, the camera distortion gives way, and he collapses back into bed. Even though we only get bits and pieces of the words, the intention feels clear enough. They, through hypnosis, have been able to contact whatever this entity is, and it knows not only who Abby is, but about her study, which it tells her to stop, as the being she is seeking is already here. This is more than enough for Abby to want to pack up her family and leave. Ronnie comes in with an urgent call from Abel, which he shirks off, and the boy relays while he's already on his way. Ronnie is then drawn to the window and sees something that causes him to ask his dear old mother derisively, what did you do? It's the cops there, pounding at the door. They burst in, wanting to know what happened with Scott, as he's now paralyzed from the neck down. Uh-oh. She weakly tries to theorize that something inside of him twisted his body, and of course, August wants proof. Too bad the tape got all distorted right when all the juicy stuff went down, and thusly, there is no reason for the sheriff to believe her wacky story, and has no choice but to place her under arrest. Abel steps in to defend her, as he saw what happened with his own eyes. Yet, as usual, he fails to be able to describe much, you know, you kinda had to be there. Regardless, thanks to Abel, August relents to just putting Abby on house arrest, better than going to jail and losing your kids at least. A deputy is stationed out front and radios to home base that he's in position and switches on a dash cam to record. In the real interview, Abby says this case reminded her about many other missing people and homicides over the years. Dozens have been happening in the town since the 60s and even the FBI has dropped in on occasion. But as we might guess by now, all the cases were never solved. When it comes to encounters, there are four categories or kinds. The first is seeing a UFO. Second is when you see evidence of it, crop circles and the like. The third is when we make contact. And then finally, an encounter of the fourth kind, which is of course abduction. Screw you, close encounters of the third kind. This is the fourth kind. Well, I guess Richard Dreyfus does go to live with the aliens. So it's kind of the fourth one. Anyway, yeah. She maintains that she believes everything in the town is connected, including Will and all the other missing people. She then considers, if this is happening in the small town of Nome, then presumably the same kind of thing would be happening all around the globe. The problem is, as we've seen, the abductees might not even know that it's happened because they are essentially being forced to forget by whatever is taking them, distorting their brains and memories. Now word from our sponsor, ExpressVPN. If you ever wonder why internet access is so much cheaper nowadays, it's because these companies companies aren't just making money off your subscription fees. That's right, they're also monitoring all your activity and packaging up all your precious data to sell for cash to big tech companies. So what's the best way to make sure 100% of your data is secured and encrypted? Out of the eyes of your prying ISP? You know it's ExpressVPN. I've actually used this program for years and can vouch that it does everything you need from a VPN. It creates a secure tunnel between all your devices and the internet, so everything you do online is encrypted. It reroutes all your data through a 
secure server that blocks your ISP from ever seeing what you get into online. It works on all your devices and couldn't be easier. You just tap a button and you're surfing securely. Your data is your business. Protect it at expressvpn.com ending. Visit expressvpn.com ending to get three months of ExpressVPN protection for free. That's expressvpn.com ending to learn more. Now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. I think we can all relate to feeling burnt out nowadays. The line between home life and work is more easily disrupted than ever. We're constantly working with seemingly no break ever coming. A slog that will never end. And work can take us over to the point that we forget to spend time for ourselves. Normally burnout is associated with work, but this isn't the only cause. Any of our roles in life can lead us to feeling burnt out. Some symptoms include lack of motivation, irritability, fatigue, and more. I mean, we've all been there, right? So what to do when you're feeling overwhelmed and burnt out? BetterHelp Online Therapy wants to remind you to prioritize yourself. Talking to someone else can really help us to pinpoint the causes of those stressors and take action. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's also much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash foundflix. That's better H-E-L-P com slash foundflix. At 3.33 in the morning, the deputy is passed out horn. He snorts to attention, noticing fog on the windshield. Then he sees something, muttering, what the hell is that? He steps out, and just before things get distorted, we can make out the outline of a classic flying saucer-style spaceship associated with aliens. Distortion takes over, and the object flies right over their house and yoinks them through the roof. Ryan screeches, it's taking them, and calls in for immediate backup. The image becomes clear, and it looks like everything's fine, but Ryan is still traumatized by his own encounter. Later, August shows up and wants to see the tape, but, well, you know, I didn't catch what he saw. These dang gum cameras, what are you gonna do? He finds Abby in complete hysterics, shouting that they took my baby. He then turns to Robbie, asking what he saw, and by the time he came into his sister's room, she was already gone. Abby claims that she saw a beam of light, and they took her straight up through the ceiling. August excuses the others and gets down to brass tacks with her. Just five hours ago, she was about to be arrested, and now her daughter happens to disappear, still believing that she is completely full of beans. He knows that she hasn't been right since losing Will, and Abby mumbles about how they still haven't found his killer. Yes, we have, he reiterates, and after assessing her mental state, decides to take the boy from her care. He orders some guys to take him away, and she tries to hold on to the boy, but Ronnie is indifferent, telling her to just let go. Like, see am I, you freaking weirdo. Now utterly alone, she has an emotional breakdown over a baby, squealing out, why are you doing this? Real Abby knew at this moment that she couldn't depend on anyone else, and would have to do this on her own. The interview doesn't understand as she couldn't leave her house and she clarifies that she needed to find a way directly to them, the source. Abel pays a visit looking shaken up by the experience but still refuses to accept what he saw. She's unconcerned that he doesn't believe but does need his help to hypnotize her. He isn't sure that's the best idea but she's steadfast. This is the only way. He puts her under and takes her back to three days prior when she recorded the dictation. What happened after, he asks. She was asleep and then like the others saw the owl looking at her, even confirming they are one and the same bird. Except this one is smiling, and she doesn't like it when it smiles. Abel asks for elaboration, and she doesn't know. It doesn't want her to know. So what does she see now? Well, it's not an owl, both Abby's echo. And come 3.33, the same time of the deputy's encounter, as well as matching up with all the other patients, a blue light descends upon the house. The door opens, and shadowy figures enter the room, descending upon Abby, her screaming and pleading for help. She attempts to fight them off, still screaming. She's levitated out 
out of her bed and straight out of the room. Real Abby cries, there's too many of them, and see her in a weird white environment with a big spinning contraption behind her. Sure looks like we're getting a brief glimpse of her being on board the alien spacecraft. The device whirs to life and sticks into her shoulder, creating the mark that she saw. This could be how they control their mind as well. And then another rod looks to be venturing towards a more private area. Yikes. In the office, she starts groaning and like Scott is lifted in the air. The voice returns and we only get a few keywords again. I enforce my will, not world no. She screeches for it to return her baby and it replies, child never returned. Truth remains, Father, I am God. Abby falls back down, her mouth contorted in an unusual manner. The others rush to her side and a voice chimes, Z, ma, boo, eh, The same thing Tommy said right before going mental. Frustratingly, we were provided with no translations or hints as to what this phrase means in Sumerian. Although I was quite amused to discover that since the movie's release, internet scholars out there have been actually trying to translate it, ultimately to no avail. Bummer, I guess the mystery will remain. With the interviewer, Abby believes plain as day that the aliens came, abducted the whole group, and returned everyone the same night. However, no one remembered that they took us or what they did to us. Even with hypnosis, it's black. Well, what about the voice? Was it hers or someone else's? She admits that it's hard to say with certainty, but based on what she's seen and presences she's felt inside of her, it's beyond anything you can imagine. Though as its presence made her feel a feeling of hopelessness, she thinks it cannot be God, although it can pretend to be. As for her missing daughter, she remembers after the session that she was unconscious at the hospital for a few days. She comes to with Abel and the sheriff waiting nearby. August apologizes, but he has to once more ask her that question that plagued Abby from the beginning and propelled her on her journey. How did Will die? He was murdered, she plainly states, but that isn't quite what happened, which she is forced to come to terms with now. Abel tries to soften the blow. He has something to show you that will upset you, but it must be done. In an almost elementary connect the dots, August holds up a picture of Will's body with a hole in it and then another picture with a gun. Can you put together what happened? Yes, he took his own life, they make that abundantly clear. There was no intruder despite Abby's insistence. She refuses to accept the truth, crying that he's not the kind of man that would do that to his family. And then leans on her professional experience. If something was going on, she would have been able to pick up on it. But Abel gets to the heart of the matter. She can't take responsibility for his death. No one will ever know what he found that broke him, but at least she now knows the truth. Hoping that they've broken through her mental fog, August wants to know what really happened to Ashley. She leans onto her confidant. You know what happened. You experienced it yourself. We came back and she didn't, moaning to tell the sheriff. But unlike before, Abel stays silent because as we know, it's all a mixed up void in his memories. How can he be sure of what really happened? And now thanks to him not backing her up, Abby is back to being painted as Looney Tunes. August acknowledges how difficult it must be to come back to reality. You can't just stop being insane whenever you want to. It's the kind of thing that stays with you forever. This naturally calls everything we've seen into question. How do we know for sure what we saw if she was unable to accept how Will died. Yet we see in the present with the interviewer, she is able to acknowledge what happened to her husband. So even if she was having some issues, that doesn't discredit all the recordings. They don't lie. We flash through the previous aliens victims, her saying that these are cold hard facts. The interview attempts to present a dissenting opinion and she snaps, it's real, goddammit. She has to keep that hope alive and believing in what she's doing. She has to believe that there's a chance she'll see Ashley again and that she is somewhere safe. She's all I have, she concludes with a tear rolling down her cheek. The shot pulls out wide, revealing that she has been immobilized and is now confined to a wheelchair. The interview again, really our film's writer and director, comes on screen along with Mila to spout some real life strange facts about Gnome. It has had over 2,000 visits by the FBI, the highest in the entire state by a wide margin. Mila leaves it to the viewer. In the end, it's up to you 
what you believe. Was it a sign of a real alien abduction, or just a grief-stricken widow hoping for answers? We'll get back to that in a moment, as we are presented with updates on our faux real-life players. Dr. Abel continues to practice, but refused to comment or participate in the film at all. As we saw with him, he was never willing to believe something so fantastical was happening, so sounds like he just wanted to stick with that and move on with his life. As for Otosami, he continues to further success, and was willing to help with these Sumerian translations with the voice as we saw in the recordings. He declined any further involvement, although importantly, he does corroborate Abby's testimony. Ronnie is now 22 years old and remains estranged from his mother, continuing to blame her for his sister's disappearance. Also, just thinking Abby was nuts, probably didn't help. Dr. Tyler was eventually cleared of all allegations and relocated to the East Coast. Thanks to her deteriorating condition, she is bedridden and under constant supervision. To this day, she asserts Ashley was taken by non-human intelligences. This could be true, as the girl was never found. To make reality and fiction murky once more, over the credits we hear real phone calls of various people over the years who have claimed to have their own encounters. When it comes to Abby, yes, she did create a kind of false reality regarding her husband's death, yet as she said, that also doesn't discredit the recordings and other evidence. There must be some kind of interstellar beings doing experiments on the citizens of Gnome, and probably all over the world! They mentioned at one point in connection to the Sumerian history, a god called Anu, Achu, no, it's not it, sorry. They are described as the divine personification of the heavens, the supreme source of all authority for all the other gods, as well as mortal rulers. So it truly sounds like Anu has returned after the Sumerian times, or perhaps never actually left, but this all fits in with the evidence presented. It's not God-God, as Abby pointed out, but it is a different god entirely, the Sky God, which definitely makes sense regarding what we would consider traditionally to be aliens. So there you go, Abby wasn't so crazy after all, just half crazy, I guess. Still a bummer that she ended up losing her entire family because of all this. I also would wager that Will's own suicide was caused by him having similar encounters to what we saw. Once the patients started poking around about what was hidden in their mind, pretty much all of them ended up with broken bodies or dead. As Abby believed, it really does all feel connected. With that, we've reached the conclusion of this ending explained for the fourth kind. Thanks to everyone out there that suggested this one. And don't forget, you can make requests for any movies or TV shows you'd like to see me explain by sending them my way on any of my social media accounts at Foundflix. What did you guys think of the fourth kind and its ending? Have you had a close encounter? Let me know your thoughts down in the comments below. Make sure to like, subscribe, and follow. Thanks for watching Found Flicks. See you next time.